I put my number up here because I thought that's just a simple way to do Q&A. You can just text me the question. And chances are, whatever question you have, other people are wondering about. So um, please do ask those. All right. Um, let me pray, and we'll get started. You can let him run around. It's okay. Yeah. It's okay. It's okay, Josiah. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, this time with the brothers. Um, teach us this topic on, on being a Christ-like husband, what that means, why it's important. And we're probably going to be just scratching the surface here, but uh, um, what, what might be the first steps uh, towards this lifelong uh, endeavor? So guide us, uh, send your spirit to teach us, we pray in your son's name, amen. All right, uh, I, I thought it'd be helpful to talk about why do we even care about this topic, okay? Just as a way of starting this off, um, and there's a lot of answers to that, but here, here's maybe one way to start it off. I'll, I'll try to make a cultural case why, why this could be important for us. Um, let's start with a very like, commonly heard thing about divorce rates in our country. It's right up there around 45, 50%. That's, that's still kind of the, the number, depending on which research you look at. It's very high. Top eight reasons most commonly cited as reasons for divorce. Lack of commitment. Incompatibility that surfaces over time. Having lack of shared values, social values, sexual compatibility, religious differences that emerge over time. Uh, communication problems. Inability to resolve recurring conflicts, building of resentment over time, that's all under the umbrella of communication problems. Extramarital affairs. Financial incompatibility or disagreements about money. Okay. Conflicts over family responsibilities, raising children, household chores, um, and relationship or obligation to in-laws. Right. Um, number seven, substance abuse. Number eight, domestic abuse. Okay. A key theme that's found in these reasons, uh, in many of these instances, they're always discovered over time, meaning these are mostly undetectable uh, early on in the stages of dating, premarital stage, even the first couple years of marriage. You don't detect these things, they surface over time. Um, and especially the, the first three years or so where the, the divorce rates are highest. Um, so all that to say, unless you're intentionally like pushing against the opposite direction of growing in these areas, um, growing in having shared values, growing in conflict resolution, growing in faithfulness to each other, whether that's physical, financial, emotional. Uh, learning to be generous with one another at home. Without this like, intentional movement in the opposite direction, the tendency is you drift in the negative direction. Okay? So that's empirical. This is not just, you know, thus saith the Lord. Um, although that's true enough, but empirically speaking, right, this is the case. So, so it turns out there's a lot more to being a good husband, however you define that, than uh, whatever you might be informed digitally, like when you look at Instagram. For, you know the whole Instagram husband thing? There was an uh, interesting article on, on The Atlantic about the identity of Instagram husbands, the, the behind-the-scenes person that seems to provide this woman um, all the wonderful eateries and vacation spots that prove 
that she has a good husband. And that's kind of like the, the Instagram husband. In reality, uh, in the non-digital world, in the real world, uh, it takes a lot more than learning how to take good photos for your, for your wife's lunch menu and vacation spots then, right? Um, it, it takes a lot to be, a lot more to be a good husband. Um, that's where our topic of being a Christ-like husband comes in, right? It, it's not enough that you're culturally informed, okay, this is what it kind of looks like being a good husband. You have to do a, there's a lot of intentionality and work, effort, learning that goes into it. Now, having said that, do 50% of marriages all end in divorce? Well, earlier I said it depends on what research you look at. And turns out the stats are a little bit different when you talk about specifically among the, the Christian world. So, um, and it depends on how you define Christian too. Usually the Christian category in, in these surveys uh, include people who profess a belief system but not to a committed lifestyle. Okay, So if you're actually active in your faith, you're active in your faith, your chances of divorce is actually 27 to 50% lower than uh, those who are uh, categorized as non-churchgoers. Okay. Yeah, question. That's a good question. I don't know. Yeah. That's a good question, though. Um, nominal Christians, those who simply call themselves Christians but do not actively engage with the faith, are actually 20% more likely than the general population to get divorced. Okay? So if you're a nominal Christian, you call yourself a Christian but you're active in the faith, you have a higher chance than secular people in getting divorced. Um, Brad Wilcox, director of the National Marriage Project at University of Virginia, and it's not some biased Christian think tank, right? Said, quote, active conservative Protestants who attend church regularly, right? You're involved with church actively, are 35% less likely to divorce than those who have no religious preferences, okay? So um, these kinds of things are observed. And, and so I do want you guys to know that what we talk about from here have kind of empirical weight to them. Um, before I kind of pile on the the spiritual weightiness of it, I do want you to know this is a world, this is the real world you live in where the things we learn will matter and it will manifest. That's kind of why I'm giving you that, that picture, all right? Um, that's the cultural case for it, all right? Here's, here's maybe the, the more important spiritual case for it. Um, I want to pick up on what I think was the mo- more, most important statistic I just mentioned, and that is the thing about nominal Christians, okay? Those who call themselves Christians but don't have an active life of faith or discipleship, okay? Why does that make such a difference? Um, and it reminded me of a passage in Mark chapter 2, and you can look at it if you like. Let me just read it for you. Mark chapter 2, verses 21, 22. Jesus says, No one sews a piece of unshunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins, okay? New wine, new wineskins. Um, so what this means in, in that context is Jesus is not, he's teaching the religious folks, you can't patch on Jesus to your old um, system of religion or traditions. When you do that, um, you ruin everything. So it's either you have 100% Christ in your life, He's, he's, he's the Lord, master and commander over every aspect of your life, or he's nothing to you, 
But if you try to patch him onto a secular way of life, uh, a worldly pattern that you've already, you know, got, got comfortable with, and you're just trying to patch Jesus onto that, that's not, that's not going to work. Uh, what does that mean for our marriage or husbanding? Okay. It means we can't just tack on spiritual and biblical principles and aspects about being a husband to a non-Christian, secular, or contemporary principle uh, about being a husband, about marriage, right? So in a sense, the first step towards our being a Christ-like husband is uh, rejecting this notion uh, that a slice of Christianity, just like a dosage of Christianity added to my largely non-God-centered way of life will better my marriage somehow. In, in, in fact, it could actually make it worse. Uh, you'll be living in various contradictions that make it worse. So it's a lie to think, okay, all I need is just a, a, a little additional dosage of Christianity. And we've got to stop believing uh, that lie. Do you guys hear this beeping? Um, maybe James is looking at it. oh he knows what's going on alright um, so either you have Jesus Christ as Lord over your marriage he's the master and commander of your marriage your identity as a husband or, or you don't have him at all okay um, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Does that mean apart from him we can't even hold a marriage together? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, before we jump into, okay, how do I, how do I become a Christ-like husband? I think we have to wrap our minds around that. Being a, being a Christ-like husband means that you, you become a Christ-like person. And, and it's not about adding Christ, like a dosage of Christ-likeness to, to your romantic life or your, or your marriage. And so then we can go from here and ask, what if, okay, what if our marriage and our identity as husbands, for those of you who are married, were to be so completely shaped and patterned by, by God's pattern laid out for us in Scripture? What would that look like? And I think that's when the dominoes start falling and you start asking the right questions. Um, what if the God of the Bible were to be the soul master and commander over your marriage and your identity as husbands. And for those of you who are considering even the remote possibility of becoming husband one day, um, I hope this will kind of help you get into that mindset early. The best place to start is Ephesians 5. So since we're going to talk a little bit about that, why don't you go ahead and pull up that passage on your phone uh, your, or if you have a Bible, uh, Ephesians 5. And I'm going to actually just read a chunk of passage there from verse 21 to 33. Okay. Ephesians 5, starting from verse 21. Here we go. Uh, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. 
For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Okay, now if any of you are going, um, I've heard that, right? And uh, there's nothing new about that. Remember, what we're talking about is not having tried this as a tack on, right, to um, something, some other program you have going on. Uh, we're talking about this as your only program. We're talking about what if this was your only template for your marriage and you discard all other things? What might that um, begin to look like? And I'll venture to say we, we all struggle to do that or, or we have all left it kind of untried um, as this not merely just being something that gets tacked on to whatever we have going on, but this being the only template we have for our marriage. Um, take verse 25, for example, where it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And, and let's see what happens as we unpack what that means. As, what if that were to really impact, permeate our every act, thought, word, right, towards our spouse, towards the other person, our partner? Um, in all that the husband does, he is to act towards her as Christ acts towards the church. Okay. How does, how does Christ act towards the church. Uh, can you just yell out a couple things that you would identify Christ and his heart uh, towards the church? What's that? It's his bride, okay, yeah. How does he feel towards his bride? He sacrificed himself for her, what else? Why would he do that? Because he loves her. Um, what is he doing for the church now as we speak? Having loved the church and died for the church, sacrificed for the church, now what is he doing for the church? Interceding for the church, leading them home. Right? So if I were to uh, maybe like summarize it, Christ um, is a loving, uh, sacrificing servant leader, right? Still leading, serving uh, the church, right? That's, that's Christ in relationship to the church, right? Husbands, or those of you who are planning on being husbands, that has to be your primary job description, right? Uh, you are to be a loving and sacrificing, serving, and leading uh, person to your, to your spouse. Um, and I don't know about you, but having done this just over 10 years now, this is already work cut out for me for the rest of my life. Okay. This is enough for me to focus on for the rest of my life. Uh, it's something I'm still striving in and often struggling uh, to do. But if I have a pathway towards this, I also know I have a good thing going for the rest of my life. If I can stay on my path towards growing in these areas, then um, I'm, I think I'm, I'd be set. I don't need a lot. I don't need to be an Instagram husband to please my wife and to be a good husband to her. But I need these things. 
And if I can just hone in on these fundamentals, I think I'd be okay. All right. uh, when I get derailed from this, I, I come back to this. All right. And, and when the seasons where our, where our marriage have struggled or is, is struggling, it's when I am losing my focus on this and focusing on something else. Um, and those are the seasons when God brings me back to this. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Okay. So this is the general pattern. Um, and I, wanted, I do want to unpack, you know, what, what this could look like. Um, now, before we go on, though, this assumes something, right, even more fundamental, right, uh, and that is you deeply, personally identify yourself um, as the bride of Christ who receives these things from the Lord, yourself. You're a recipient of these things before you are a provider of these things. You, you, you do know that. Um, you identify Jesus as your Christ, your Lord and Savior, and therefore your spiritual husband. Right. Before you are anything vocational or you know, humanly speaking relational, you are, you are this, a lover of Jesus who receives his loving sacrificial servant leadership. Right. You've been first loved by him and, and have now been called to, to love him in the same way. And, and that means your primary agenda in life uh, is now to please this person who has loved you and, and given himself uh, entirely to you. Your primary agenda in life cannot be uh, to be a good husband to your wife. Apart from this understanding, you don't even have a good definition of what a good husband is. Because according to the Atlantic, I mean, uh, there's a way of defining a good husband according to Instagram. What is a good husband? And the way that we shape our definition of a good husband is through our relationship with our Lord and Savior, okay? Um, so your primary concern is to be, okay, it's gonna sound weird, but hear me out. Before, before you think about being a good husband to your wife, you gotta be a good spiritual wife to your spiritual husband. And, and before that weirds you out, all that means is uh, we're not here to be better husbands first, but to be better disciples of Christ first. Uh, and and that's, that's got to be the, the first step. And, and, and realizing it doesn't work the other way around. Trying to be a better husband will not necessarily make you a better disciple. Um, it would only make you a... You, you become a wife pleaser, in a sense. Uh, you, you buy into the whole... Um, happy wife, happy life, truism, um, when that could completely right, be derailed from God's purpose of her sanctification, her betterment, her flourishing, um, without that, loving her well could really mean just whatever version of happiness is trending at the moment, but not in God's eyes what's truly good for your wife. Um, so I'll, I'll get into it a little bit, but let me get to Danny's question before we move on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's save that for the, yeah, yeah, text me. That's a good question. Um, let's, let's address that a little bit later. Ephesians 1, if you go to Ephesians 1, what it says there also is that God the Father has put all things under Christ 
and gave him as head, head over all things uh, to the church. Meaning, uh, God has given Christ to the church, this bridegroom to the bride as a gift. And because of his headship, because of his leadership, the church is a recipient of a million benefits. Um, it, he benefits the church and therefore he's been given to the church. And that's the, that's the whole idea of headship. Uh, it's because of the person who is head, all under him are, are benefit, are blessed. So that's the sort of headship that we as husbands uh, or those who long to be husbands need to realize you're taking upon yourself. Uh, by virtue of your being the head of the household, uh, your, your family has to be blessed through you. You have to be this uh, greatest gift in a sense, human gift that God has given to your family. Um, and that really puts you into the mindset of, uh, okay, how do I then become beneficial to, to my family? And, 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 and in that you become very countercultural uh, because you're not asking the, the, the very consumeristic question of how can they benefit me. Um, you're, you're thinking along the lines of, okay, how do I be a loving, sacrificing um, servant leader who, who's going to be a benefit to others? And you're not thinking as much about how will they benefit me. So uh, when you think about, for example, how money is spent with your spouse, uh, and by the way, if you're married, you, you, you really need to have a joint account. Um, I, I know counselors who will not officiate weddings unless couples agree to have a joint account because you know, they, it's one of the common reasons for separation later on, uh, distrust and money issues. The husband should always be thinking first, what will be, what will be uh, most blessing and, and beneficial to my wife instead of what will be most beneficial to me? Okay? You have to put her interests ahead of your own. Um, and of course, we don't want to forget Ephesians 5.21, right, that she's also to submit to Christ as well. So even your wife's interest is better defined as God's interest for her, right? Um, so, go, okay, going back to happy wife, happy life, uh, you, you have heard it said, <laughs> happy wife, happy life. But I say unto you, all right, if by happy wife you mean happy in the Lord, that's true. Otherwise, that phrase just becomes an excuse for living permissively and indifferently with your wife uh, without proactively leading her in the right direction. Um, can I say happy children, happy parents? That doesn't work, does it? <laughs> Why? Because if I'm always making them happy, I'm, all, I'm probably neglecting them. I think something similar could be applicable here. It's not a, it's not a good truism to use. It actually could be, could be quite harmful. If you, if you misuse it. Um, okay, so with that in mind, you can begin asking, how do I serve her in a way that would be honoring to God? Um, having talked about financial aspects, you can also ask, how can I serve her in social aspects? How can I make it pos more possible for her to be emotionally thriving and healthy, encourage friendships, right? Um, how can I shape or so uh, fashion my social dynamics around her? Um, uh, how can I be the, the, the man here and put myself in um, social scenarios b because my wife is more extroverted and I'm more introverted? How, how can I be the mo one more uh, diligent here in serving the other person's interest? And you can also go the other way around. If you're, if you're the more extroverted person, how can I um, cut our time short and go home early for the sake of my introverted wife who's feeling really drained? You put her interests ahead of your own. You can also ask, 
um, how can I serve her in regards to our physical intimacy? Okay, and let me camp here for a little bit because I think this is a big one for, for brothers. Um, when it comes to the issue of, of sex and physical intimacy, um, physical compatibility, sexual attraction compatibility is probably in your, all of your top three when it comes to looking for like the right person for those of you who are still looking. And for those of you who are married, uh, I, I would not be surprised if you were to tell me it's also an area where you struggle in your marriage, not just relationally or communication, but sexually. So let's, I, I do want to talk about this a little bit um, because it's a big issue. But if you were to take Ephesians 5 as a template, let's just say what we should say. You are to serve her in that regard rather than demanding to be served, to, to put it very simply. Um, you are to be considered, considerate of her preferences, her timing, her mood, or lack of mood, um, rather than demanding that she conforms to your preferences, your timing, your, your feeling like it or not feeling like it. Uh, if you have to have your gratification, your satiation, your way, your time, to your liking, um, I mean, that's, you know that. I mean, you know, you know, this, you know that's immature, or you know that's, that's sinful. That's how, that's how boys treat pornography, right? My time to my liking, my way, whenever I want. Um, and it's objectifying the other person as, as an object to, to, to serve my interests rather than honoring them and serving them and their interests. Um, this is probably one of the most countercultural things you face, um, seeing sex as an area of giving and not taking. I don't know if all of you actually still believe that. <laughs> um, it's an aspect of your life where you are a servant, not a consumer. Uh, you may agree in principle. I don't know how well you agree with that in practice because uh, it's just not the world we, we live in. It's, it's not maybe how we were raised to think about sex. Um, but make no mistake about it. You've you got to be Christ-like in the marriage bed. You've got to be Christ-like with your sexuality. You serve with it. You sacrifice in it. It's not this sort of hollow ground where Christ-likeness goes out the window. Oh, when it comes to my sexuality, it's all about getting what I want, when I want it, how I want it. But in other areas, like chores, yeah, I'll serve. Spending money, I'll serve. You know, social aspects, I'll serve. Sex, I must be served. That's a lie. That's a lie. So uh, include this in your area of service. You sacrifice in it, you serve, you lead lovingly. All of these Christ-like qualities must be displayed through your sexuality. And the truth is, um, the human body is constantly changing, if you haven't noticed already, uh, over time. Um, maybe especially during COVID, I don't know. So, so will our sexual drives and sexual compatibility with our spouse. Um, that's why this is one of the biggest reasons why it's one of the eight common reasons for people divorcing. They pri when they prioritize sexual compatibility that's really discovered early on and then they neglect the importance of the compatibility that you build upon over time, 
right? So it's the, it's the compatibility you discover that's exciting. But then the, the compatibility you build is unromantic. That ruins it. That ruins the marriage. Um, neuroscientists have actually discovered when you, when you first meet someone, there's actually this incredible rush, chemically speaking, uh, in your brain that makes you feel great. Right? It's almost like a new drug you've discovered, your brain has discovered. It feels great. That goes away during the first two years of marriage. And then it'll be different again when you have children. It'll be different when you have different sleep cycles, when someone's work pattern changes, when their emotional life pattern changes, when someone gets injured. In other words, in order to stay sexually compatible with one person for the rest of your life, you have to realize sexual compatibility is something you build over time. Uh, in spite of the unpredictable, inevitable life changes that occur. And it's unrealistic and frankly childish to, to demand um, that initial rush must, must be something that we, we maintain uh, through the rest of our lives. Uh, Lewis Smeets, he's a Christian philosopher. He said, my wife has lived with at least five different men since we were married, and each of the five has been me. The connecting link has always been the memory of the name I took on our wedding day, which is, I am he who will be there with you. What he's saying there is, after 30 years of marriage, uh, he, he's confirming that you know, what sustained him and his wife all through those years not, it was not their sexual compatibility, not their feelings about each other even, uh, not physical attraction, but as all of these things change, right, one season to the next, they kept the promise to one another to remain faithful, and that built and rebuilt new levels of compatibility over time, it's, and it's so new and refreshing, you, you, you may feel like you're, you're married to a, a, a stranger. So that's what he means by she's been married to five people and all five people have been happened to me. Everything else changed. Everything changed. Only the covenant remained. Okay. So, um, God's design for sex is for it to be this physical sign of a lifelong commitment between a, a man and a woman. And so, yeah, I say this a lot in our premarital and, and pre-engagement. Um, don't give your whole body to someone you haven't promised your whole life to. Okay. Uh, and, and that's what sexual intimacy is meant to, meant to symbolize. Um, and if you already deviated from that, get back on this so that you begin to reclaim the statement you're actually making through your sexual intimacy. It means I belong to you for life. Uh, I'm confirming the covenant I made with you for life. Um, the more you take sex out of that context, the more you weaken its power to fuel your covenant when it comes to your marital life. So, so the key is to, to put that fire in the proper context. Um, I hope that warning kind of, or that exhortation came across, right? If you demand, if you demand gratification, um, that's the opposite of being Christ-like. That's not being a husband. That's not even being a man. That's being a child. Uh, it's a child who sees a commercial of Disneyland and says, uh, I want that now. I, I want that every day for the rest of my life. And I can't, I, I'm, if I can't have it, I'm going to start throwing a fit. Okay. Uh, and if a, if a grown man does something like that with sexuality, uh, he's a fool, according to the Bible. 
because he hasn't given up his childish ways. He's a fool. Well, the Greek word for it is actually uh, anoetos. It's where we get the word idiot. All right, I'll stop there. So, yeah, get off. If, if, you've, if you've been thinking along these, you know, this, if you've been on this train of thought, get off that, train, that, that cultural train of thought, that cultural approach that makes you feel entitled as husbands to demand sex or expect constant sexual fulfillment from, from your lifelong partner, from your wife, but be biblical about it. Surrender that and uh, infuse sacrifice and service into your sexuality. Uh, be biblical about it. Be Christ-like about it. And that, guys, when you do that, it will only better, not worsen, better your sex life in the long run. All right. Um, not to get too weird again, but service and sacrifice for your wife is foreplay. All right. Do the dishes. Um, take out the trash. All right. Ask her, how are you doing? And just listen. Right. Don't, don't fix anything, don't correct anything, just listen. Um, affirm her feelings, don't try to fix them. I see that's how you feel, I'm sorry you feel that way. Right. Um, have you seen the video clip, it's not about the nail? You can misinterpret the video to say, you know, men know it all, men really see the, the solution to the problem, but it, I think it's really a way of saying, uh, to us, everything looks like a nail, right? Um, when the answer is not just, you know, fixing a, a problem we see in front of us. But that's service, that's, that's putting her benefit um, ahead of your own. Danny, did you have a hand up? Yeah. Oh yeah, good question. You're asking all these questions that should be texted to me. Um, can you, I mean, can you actually text that? Because that's a really good question um, about love languages. I, I do want to address that, so please do ask that. Okay. Um, so, yeah. The real way to pursue a long-lasting intimacy that outlasts the, the chemicals in your brain <laughs> um, will probably mean something outside, doing something outside the bedroom. Okay. How you listen, how you, how you support her emotionally, how, how you display patience, endurance, um, kindness, and gentleness towards her, okay? Now, you will be completely misunderstanding this if after having done that, you then turn around and say, okay, now do I get some uh, appreciation? You're completely missing the point. That's not service. That's a transaction. That's still you trying to serve yourself through these sort of kind of vending machine, like I've deposited enough kind, acts of kindness, so should come out, right, this, this satisfying product. No, that would be missing the point. I don't know if you've noticed, right, but just cov covering Ephesians 5, general principle, and maybe some practical applications from that, you, we've already addressed quite a few of the eight most common causes of divorce, okay? So I think a more, more, pra more proactive way to fortify your marriage is really to turn to Scripture often and, and be grounded in Scripture um, so, so you can really get ahead of it and be proactive rather than being reactive to a, um, a bad situation. Now, before we move on, let me make a quick note about submission. Um, and then I wanted to close with some practical points and then take your questions. We know the Bible says, I mean, we know it says here, wives are to submit to their husbands, right? And maybe I'll address that for the sisters in the future, you know. Um, 
when they're ready for that. Um, let me say two things about that for us. Right? First, what the Bible commands the wife to give her husband is submission, but not unconditional submission. There's only one person in her life that she should give unconditional submission to, and that's God, not you. Uh, she's not called to put blind faith in you. So do your part in earning her trust, earning her respect, um, earning her submission through your affection, through your faith, through your character, uh, through your gentleness. You, know, you draw out her trust and her, her submission. And don't ever quote that passage and say, you should submit to whatever I'm saying. That's not the way to do that. Uh, second, Christ-likeness has to start with you because you're the head. Christ is the head of the church. Christ loves the church first in the same way you are to love your bride and, and serve her first. Um, it's got to start with you. If, if you are not displaying Christ-likeness, I'm not inclined to ask your wife to, to submit to you, imitate her church-likeness. Um, so I, I'm very reluctant to encourage wives to be church-like and submit before husbands understand what it means to be Christ-like and lead and serve and sacrifice, okay? And that's why we're here, right? You're, you're here not to learn what you can take home and preach to your wife about what they should do. You're here to learn what, how you are to grow in your Christ-likeness, right? Um, so keep that in mind and... Um, you don't have to fall into this trap of thinking, but what about her? Okay. You're perfectly fine in thinking about, what about me? Okay. Um, I, I remember uh, Winston Smith, he's a marriage counselor at CCEF, uh, used a very helpful analogy. He said, if, if you have um, this kind of this ballroom dancing picture, um, and if, let's say, when two people are dancing to the music, one of them is a complete novice, but then the other person is a masterful dancer. The dance will still look very good because it's led by the master, right, the teacher, who's familiar with the music and the movements. The dance was, maybe the novice will step on his toes, right, hurt him here and there, but he'll, gain, he'll regain composure and control and make the dance still look good. Um, that's you. You're the husband. You are to lead even if the other person is a novice uh, or spiritually immature, uh, maybe even a non-believer that you're already married to, although Scripture commands us not to be unequally yoked. But in some cases, two, two non-Christians would marry. One of them gets baptized. Then you have, a, you have a scenario where one person has to lead the other person spiritually, whether you're the woman or the, or the man. If two people learn to dance to the music, then you have something just magical. Right? If two people are on the journey to being disciples of Christ, um, conforming gradually from one degree to the next to the image of Christ, you have something amazing. But even if it's you, just you, you can make the dance work and look great. All right? So be encouraged in that. And don't fall into the what about her. All right? Um, let me close with this. I think one area that our Christ-likeness will, will be tested the most, challenged the most, is in the area of conflict resolution. Um, so I, I did want to just leave you with, with that as we walk away. 
uh, and just kind of peel away the first layer to it, all right? What causes conflicts, quarrels among you? Uh, Bible says it's sin. Sin is what sin in us is what causes conflicts. And our hope is, our hope is that our Savior has brought a great resolution to all of our sins through his love, sacrifice, and his servant leadership. He has shown us how to make peace, how he makes peace between God and sinners, right? And, and then he calls his people to go and do likewise. Blessed, meaning happy, are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, okay? And I think that's something that most men are just ill-equipped to do going into marriage, as I was and, and still am. It's hard it, um, to know how to intentionally make peace uh, in your marriage. So let me leave you with just three thoughts, three steps maybe, in growing in that direction, uh, growing into a Christ-like peacemaker. And I do want you to start thinking about peacemaking in, in husband terms, in, in masculine terms. Uh, peacemaking is hard work. Uh, it's harder than lifting weights. It, it's harder than holding your alcohol. Okay. The, the peacemaking is hard work. Right. So be a man about it and learn how to make peace. Uh, three things I want to leave with you. Okay. Learn to dwell. Let me just write them. Uh, learn, let's learn to dwell, make peace uh, versus, you know, feeling peace, and three, um, learn to listen without speaking, okay? Um, so real quick, what do I mean by dwell? John chapter 114, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? That's the essential message of the gospel, right? The Son of God became man and intentionally chose to dwell among sinners, people in conflict with God. Um, our husband, our spiritual husband, is not one who is turned off by the sins of his bride, but he chose to enter into it and to dwell with her in it. Um, learn to dwell with your partner with your wife. Don't be turned off by her sins. Draw near. Draw near. Enter into it. Be present with her. Wrestle with her in the midst of her conflicts. And, and remember, your Lord is with you in the midst of that conflict. He dwells with you as well. And then begin to, begin to uh, make peace in that situation. You start asking, since the Lord is dwelling with us, what does he want us to think and speak and do in this moment? Since I'm the leader and the head, how can I first resemble Christ in my thoughts, words, and deeds right now? Or how have I failed to dwell with her, to seek to understand her, and how can I confess? Okay? Um, learn to dwell. Don't, don't flee. Don't run. Uh, when, when your wife is struggling, having a hard time, seek to understand her and, and dwell with her. You're doing your job. Even if you're not solving it, if you, even if you're not removing the problem completely, um, dwelling with her, saying things that won't push her away, but keep her near you, you're doing your job as, as a peacemaker. Um, learn to make peace rather than, you know, trying to feel peace, because um, that's what really scripture means when, when it calls us to make peace. Um, it's more of an action than a feeling. Okay, think of all that God has done to 
establish peace and his shalom, right? Not only between God and man, but God and creation. He's, it's, it's all active. It's all driven by his, caused by his actions. Uh, he doesn't just give us like a good dosage of peaceful feelings. So, okay, then we can ask, in, consistent with Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers. This is a helpful question to ask in any, any situation, any conflict. What would be the next step I can take that would actually contribute to peace? Okay. How can I make peace and not provoke further anger? Because we know, we know really well how to do that, how to provoke someone to anger. Like I, here's a really scary thing, right? Because after you know, 10 years of marriage, you really get to know someone. And rather than using that knowledge to serve my wife, sometimes what I do is I use that knowledge to really twist the knife and really just make her mad. That's how sinful I can be. It's like I use that knowledge I have about her against her. We know how to really provoke someone to anger, uh, but we're kind of clueless as to the choice we have in pursuing the, the other path, how to evoke peace. Because you, you when you get to learn about this person, you know what not to say um, and what to say, when to say, when not to say it in order to evoke peace. Um, be a peacemaker, um, and, and it doesn't, sometimes it's, it's, it, it may feel inconsistent with how you feel in the moment because you feel conflicted, and maybe you feel offended, you feel offense, but that's okay, because peace isn't just a feeling, it's primarily an action. Right. Do what makes peace and evokes peace, rather than, you know, you know I do this, uh, I'm still tempted to do this a lot, you know, I'll make peace with her when I feel like it, you know. When I feel at peace, I'll make peace. No, uh, that's not peacemaking. All right, um, learn to listen without speaking. All right, James 1.19 says, let every, every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, right? Um, what if you were to go into every conflict praying that, Lord, help me listen right now and just close my lips <laughs> um, and help me to get on her train of thought as I listen rather than get on the train of you know, all these self-justifying thoughts all these rebuttals I'm gonna bring against her. Um, and again, if you're, if you're wondering, but what if she's not understanding me? What if she's not getting my point, my, my perspective? Well, be a man and take the bullet. Uh, uh, the bullet of being misunderstood before you, you, know, you seek to understand the other person. Model for her how to understand you. Model for her good listening so she would be a good listener towards you. All right. Um, don't ask for 50-50. Don't ask for, you scratch my bag, I scratch yours. Right. That's not loving, sacrificial servant uh, leadership. Okay? Um, maybe the point to all of this is as you, as you learn to dwell as Christ dwell with us, make peace as he made peace with us and listen and, and, and learn to be um, a servant as, as Christ served us, um, what we're doing here is we're, we're, trying to, we're trying to please God more than anything else. Um, there's a, this is a, a conversation, a counseling conversation that was uh, used in an article recently, or not recently, this is actually from a long, I read recently, uh, where the husband was having a hard time with his anger and sadness because um, his wife was uh, just not caring for him. And he started saying to the counselor, am I asking for too much? 
I hate when she argues with me, won't answer me, I can't stand it. She's not being a godly wife when she does that. And the counselor says, that's true, that, and that sounds hurtful, but let me ask you a question, Don. What is more important to you, getting what you want, a godly wife, or being godly? What do you mean, he said. Well, wanting Lisa's understanding <coughs> and caring <coughs> is important. It's not wrong. It's not sinful. In fact, it's desirable. However, when it didn't happen and you felt hurt, you took it as a justifiable reason for your anger, resulting in losing your temper. It seems to me that your want became a demand, and you are unwilling to live in a godly way with the hurt of not getting what you desired, even if what you desired is a good thing. You exploded at Lisa because you wanted your way more than you wanted God's way. What do you think? What about her? Doesn't she have any responsibility to meet any of my needs? Counselor, yes. God calls her to love you. But the real question here for you is this. What happens to you, Don, when Lisa sins against you and doesn't do it? How are you going to handle this? How can you treat her with understanding the way you want her to treat you? How do you trust God with your hurt? How can Jesus become more of a reality for you so you can extend forgiveness and find help in that moment so that you can bear this pain in a Christ-like way? Okay. I want to close off on that note because I don't want to give you the illusion that as you become more of a Christ-like husband, you suffer less in your marriage. I think it could be the opposite. I think it could be that you learn to suffer better and suffer well. You learn to carry your cross better. Because your primary agenda is not to be a happy husband with a happy wife, but to be a disciple of Christ and to please him. Our greatest commitment should be that, um, to glorify him, to please him. And I hope whether you're single or married, that's, that's, you know, that's something that you would strive to grow to and move towards um, in the future. I will please God at all costs in all areas of my life, including my marriage. Even if that means I carry the cross of marriage, I carry the cross of my wife, I carry the cross of discipleship, all right? Okay, let's do some questions. Um, you can raise your hand, ask any follow-up questions, or uh, if you haven't, some, oh, some of you already texted, great. I'll, I'll start with some of the, the texts, um, and uh, you can, Please do. Please ask follow-up um, questions. So here's, here's uh, one. Can you clarify what you mean by sexual compatibility? Oh, you can ignore that. Never mind. Um, how much weight do you put in love language? Well, that's, yeah, that was the same question that Danny asked earlier. Um, so yeah, love languages. They're, I'll say they're helpful tools um, to get a conversation started in, hey, how can I serve you? And um, here are some categories you can work with, right? Acts of service, touch, um, words of affirmation and gifts and things like that, right? Here are some categories to get you started on that, right? That's good, that's helpful. Uh, but uh, I think it can also miss the point um, of the heart matter, okay? Well, what do I mean by that? Um, well, for one, you gotta avoid the transactional way of approaching this. So, hey, I'll speak your love language as long as you speak mine, okay? So, hey, I've given you 
and you may not say this, but in your heart you could harbor this. I've given you acts of service. Where's my touch? Right? Because, hey, love languages. Um, I've given you gifts. Where are my words? You haven't given me words. I'm not going to give you gifts. So it's a tool, and a tool can be used or abused, right? It can be used or misused. It's like any, any other tool. Uh, so you kind of have to go back to the heart issue anyway of um, are you willing to be the cross-carrying servant leader where you're more fluent in the other person's language than you are in your own, and you're okay with the, the other person's lack of fluency in your love language, even as you grow in your fluency of the other person's love language. Are you okay with that? Then, I mean, yeah, love language is just one tool to help you do that, but it's, other than that, it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't speak as um, deeply into the heart matter as it ought to. That's what I think. So I don't put too much weight on it. I think it's a good place to start, but start when it comes to applying these principles, but you gotta start with the principle. The principle is, uh, are you willing to be a servant? Uh, there was actually an, an article about this recently, um, how the love language have, have really been misused in this way. So the, the, the more frequent um, use of love language has been, my love language is, right? So it's become a personality test kind of thing, where it's a, it's a tool you use to get people to understand you and meet your needs, and that's the opposite of what the, I think, original intent, intention was. But our hearts are messy, and we can distort even things that were created for good intentions, right? So, so there's that. Um, any follow-up to that? No. Okay. Um, is headship only a complementarian view? What is the egalitarian view? So, um, yeah, egalitarian view, I would say, to, to maybe put it really simply, really, you know, I'm, I might be generalizing a little bit too much easier. Uh, anything a husband can be, a wife can be, anything a wife can be, a husband can be. That's a fully consistent, full-blown egalitarian view, okay? Um, and we don't believe that. And, and I guess we would take a more comp more, slightly more complementarian view, although that has also different definitions. Um, but complementary view is, I, I mean, if by complementarian you mean Ephesians 5, husband is to lead as Christ leads the church and love the church, and, and wife is to respect and follow, submit the, to the husband as, as the church submits to Christ. Um, then, okay, yeah, I'll take that. I'll take that as complementarian. But um, if by complementarian you have all sorts of these, these um, cultural concepts of uh, wife, stay home, husband, go out to work, wife, do the laundry, husband, go to your man cave. Uh, no, that's not complementarian. That's, that's a distortion of what biblical complementarianism is. All right? Is there a follow-up? Yeah. Yeah. Um, let me see if I'm understanding. So, uh, when it comes to the, to the submission thing, it, it, it is fundamentally mutual submission to Christ, out of reverence for Christ. That's so Ephesians 5.21. So, it starts with that, and then out of your reverence and submission to Christ, you each play a distinct role within the, the marriage. So, there's a head, the leader, who's... Uh, who takes a greater responsibility for, for things, and, and, and the more supportive helper who submits to the leader, 
in that dynamic, right? So um, we would say those are pretty kind of in step with God's creation design because of the reiteration of, um, for this reason, the man shall leave his, you know, re-quoting Genesis and God's creation picture in Ephesians. Um, although, but that doesn't mean somehow they're not equal in, in dignity or, um, in fact, uh, I think there are oftentimes, the, it, it, oftentimes it is the case, the reason why God has given Adam Eve as a helper is because Adam is quite helpless without her. Um, God identifies himself as Israel's helper. So it's actually a, a, a pretty great title um, to be a helper. So uh, we would not say it's, a, it's something that indicates you're inferior or... Um, but it is distinct, like your role is distinct. Just as, um, and, and I would throw in the triune picture of God in there because uh, this is spoken of, right? Paul says uh, it's as Christ, although equal with, with the Father, right? Submits to the Father. Um, and that speaks to his humility, speaks to his, um, his role as son but it doesn't somehow make him inferior to God the Father. He's equal in power and glory and, and substance and all that stuff. So we would say the same thing about husband and wife. There's distinctions in roles. Um, and then you mentioned church. So I guess yeah. if I rephrase, would you consider a husband submitting to the wife as a valid Would I consider husband submitting to the wife Oh, is that part of the egalitarian view? Um, they would say, I, I don't think they would say they submit to each other. I've never heard actually any like egalitarian person saying that. Have you? Yeah, or, or anyone submitting to anyone. I think they would say that was Paul's time and we're way past that. Okay. We're in the 21st century, come on. That's what they would say. Right. But that's, yeah. Um, I think practically and relationally, it means that you have in mind um, a certain dependence and reliance in your relationship to this, this other entity who's distinct from you, and you do not see yourself as uh, someone who's independent and self-sufficient, but completely reliant and dependent, relationally speaking, not, not because you lack power or anything like that, but relationally speaking, that's Functionally speaking, that's what you're doing and you're submitting. Yeah. There's some seminary level questions that I don't, I don't have excellent answers for. Um, what's your view on couples who can't or uh, don't want kids? Um, yeah, so there's, there's that. I mean, it depends on what you mean by want. Because um, I think it's case by case. First of all, if you have the ability to have children, you have a wonderful gift that you should steward well to be fruitful and multiply. That's, that's a miraculous gift that God has given you to steward. And there's a reason why our natural right, intercourse between a man and a woman does lead to procreation. It's God's, it's God's intention, it's his design. Um, and having said that, right, there are, we live in a fallen world um, where there could be health concerns and issues involved that could affect your wants. Um, there could be seasons in your life where uh, as you seek to serve God, it may, not be, it may not seem like something God is 
calling you to, to be, parent. Um, I, think, I think the more important question is um, why. Uh, in asking them why, can you, draw, can you hear in their response, we, we're doing this because we're, we're either having kids or not having kids because we want to please the Lord. Uh, if they can honestly say that, then I think they're, they're okay. So I wouldn't say, um, if you're married, you know, you better start, you know, pumping out children. Um, but, you know, you should have a conversation with your wife about what would please the Lord um, and, and do that. All right. Okay. Um, how do you break a tie in a disagreement? Yeah. So um, that speaks to the complementary view. You, you, yeah, uh, you, do have, uh, you do have disagreements with God, don't you? Right. Um, I, I tend to hold on to my opinion uh, for, for quite a while. If I, if I feel like God is nudging me in a certain direction, let's say he's nudging me towards generosity, but I'm, I'm, I'm leaning towards something more selfish. Um, well, what really changes my mind is not, well, God's God, I got to do what he says. No, that doesn't really work on me. Does that work for you? I don't, it doesn't work on me. I'm perfectly capable of disobeying God, knowing God is God, all right? Knowing he is the most powerful person in the universe, I can still disobey him. That's how sinful I can be. What helps me lean in to his thoughts, his desires, is knowing how loving he is towards me and how he really wants to serve me and my best intentions in his mind, right? Um, I think a husband can display these qualities um, in, in a disagreement to, to bring the wife to the point of saying, hey, I may not see things the way you see it, but I trust you with this decision. Uh, and I think uh, as the husband is displaying these qualities, um, right, she, he, is, he is playing his part. Wife, wife has a responsibility to play her part in, in submitting to him, in, in that sort of, right? And I'm not talking about where do we go out for dinner? Like you should just, that's, that's a no-brainer, you serve her. Um, but, but let's say you really have a disagreement about, hey, do we go to a Presbyterian church or a Baptist church? Uh, and, and she has strong opinions about it, you have strong opinions about it, you both feel like this is, your, your view is more biblical, all right? But you're, if you're married, um, and, and given that your husband is trying to do what pleases the Lord and what is best for his family, you should submit to him in the, in the absolute case of there being no, no agreement, all right? Does that make sense? But in that case, I mean, if it really weighs on our conscience, I think the servant, servant thing to do might be just to, for the Presbyterian husband to go to the Baptist church with her. All right. Um, that could be the, the answer to that. All right. During conflicts, yeah, yeah. Where we had a tie-breaking situation? Yeah, okay. Well, this is a, okay, this is, I don't know if this is pertain. Uh, Most of those, um, if I came to realize I'm being pridefully stubborn, uh, it's, it's perfectly fine for me to do what she wants to do. It, it usually goes that way. Um, I don't know if this is relevant, but uh, when we first got engaged and we're thinking about, okay, you're in Cal Lynn's in California, I'm in Florida, where are we gonna live? And, and I thought, um, you know, I could just move to California because her family's there, her friends are there, I can just find a seminary there maybe. Um, so I was, I was trying to, I guess I was trying to be a cool egalitarian and be like, you know, I, I, I'll let you decide and I'll go, I'll support you and what you're doing. 
she did not want that, and she said, no, we should, we should move to Florida where, you're, where you've chosen a seminary that you think is best because you're going to be the spiritual leader of the household, and you're not going to put that ball on my court, right? You have to claim that responsibility. Because if we go to California, then it's like she has to kind of be the one providing all the... I was like, oh. That's where, strangely, she won. Because I, I was like, that makes sense. Let's do that. She won, but really God did, right? So in that sense, um, that, that's a weird sort of tie-breaking instance where uh, I let her win, but it was really because she convinced me it's really God winning. Um, there's that. 90% of the time, if husbands just humble themselves, <laughs> uh, the tie-breaking means you, you serve her and, and, and all will be well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like, yeah, that's great. That's great. <laughs> yeah, that's great. And, and you should give her those opportunities to serve you too and um, give and receive grace. Uh, what I'm talking about is like if, if two people are having this very immature debate about, you know, I don't feel like eating that. Well, I feel like eating that. Well, I want what I want, and you want what you want. I'm talking about those silly kind of instances where it should just be a no-brainer. Um, you, you don't, even if, she, even if you know, the wife takes that route, you don't take that route, okay? Um, during conflicts, is there a certain amount of grace that's needed for the other person? Does a certain situation deserve more grace than another? Yes. You, you need you need a whole lot of grace uh, for the other person. You need God's grace. That's how big a grace you need. <laughs> right, his grace. How big is God's grace? I mean, try to wrap your mind around that. And God says you need that to, to, uh, to be gracious to a sinner. Right, so the, the key is, right, knowing how to love a sinner, and God has shown us that, and it's his grace. Um, how do we tap into that? That's the question maybe, right? How do we tap into the grace of God so we can be gracious to others? Um, this is where Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke to the, to the woman who's, who's uh, showing her thanks for being forgiven. She loves much because she's been forgiven much, right? So it's to the extent that you, you realize your forgiveness and how you've been forgiven, that's the extent to which you'll be able to offer forgiveness. Um, people who are not that forgiven, if, if your sins are tiny, and God's forgiveness, therefore, is, is tiny, then your grace extended to your partner will be very tiny too, very short-lived. But if God's grace to you has been life-saving, like I should be in hell apart from the grace of God, that's how sinful and wicked I am. And by the grace of God, I am what I am, a child of God. Well, um, well take, that, take that to your relationships. And, uh, and the parable of the, the, the king who, for, who forgives debts, right? who forgives the servant's debt, and the servant then goes and holds that smaller debt to account, right? Uh, don't be that guy. Um, but realize what, how costly you know, your forgiveness was and carry, carry the cost of uh, forgiving the other person. And does a certain situation deserve more grace than another? I don't think any situation deserves grace. If they deserve grace, it's not grace. Grace is undeserved. I, I, I don't buy it when people say, when I counsel them and they say, um, but they don't deserve my grace or my mercy. And I would say, if they deserved it, it wouldn't be mercy. 
it would be their wages. Um, but what has God called us to do? To, to love the undeserving, right? Love our enemies even. So, and, and yeah, certain situations deserve more than that or warrant more than that as in um, uh, there are small offenses and there are great offenses. There are um, sins of different consequences and so um, some situations may take longer to, for you to resolve or come to reconciliation or forgiveness. Some other situations it could be a some, some situations could be so small you could apply Proverbs 19.11 to overlook the offense, and that's to your glory, why right? you overlook it. Uh, but some offenses are so great, I mean, extreme cases being if you were abused as a child or something like that, um, that the application of grace to those traumatic situations, it's a lifelong process, and, you, and no one should tell you, um, be gracious and get over it, but through the grace of God, you you heal uh, from one degree to the next, and it, may, it probably will be a lifelong um, process there, all right? Um, through your counseling experience, what have been the uh, realistic consequences on sex outside of marriage? Uh, one I've heard is guilt felt before marriage, after sex is felt, oh, even after uh, marriage. Okay. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, realistic consequences of sex outside of marriage? Well, I mean, Going beyond my, my limited experience, um, I think New York Times came out with the article a few years ago how uh, those who cohabitate before they marry have a significantly higher chance of divorcing than those who do not. Right? This is the New York Times. This is not pastor talk. Right? It's Christianity today. This is the New York Times telling you that. Um, why? Because if, if, you're, if, you're, if you've been living together, sleeping together, and doing everything that married people do, then your commitment to marriage doesn't come with any significant ch change. So just as easily you slip into the marital vows, you can slip out of it, okay? So cohabitating is a bad idea just even from in secular terms. Um, I think that's, that's worth mentioning. But spirit, uh, maybe, maybe spiritually, I'll say this. Um, David Paulison, right, the, the counselor at CCEF, he's passed away now. In his pre-engagement booklet, which we use for our pre-engagement process, whenever he talks about conflict resolution, he talks about abstaining from um, sex before marriage or outside of marriage. Isn't that interesting? Um, in that same chapter about conflict resolution, he talks about are you abstaining from you know, crossing sexual boundaries w before you're married? And I think having done that with most of our couples here, I think it's beginning to make sense to me now why that's in that unit. If you're not uh, able to surrender to, to God, his control over your sexual boundaries, you probably won't be able to do that with your emotional boundaries. If you're saying, I must be physically gratified in this way or that way, you will probably say that about your emotions when you get angry, short-tempered, impatient, irritated, right? So it's, it's a matter of self-control in a sense. The fruit of the spirit is self-control and if you don't have that in one area, you probably don't have it in the other area. So I, th I think that's why he kind of pairs them in the same chapter, um, talking about conflict resolution, which requires a lot of emotional self-discipline and self-control, the same um, application to sexual boundaries. Uh, but it's not something irredeemable. Um, it's not something that you know, should cause you to feel this perpetual guilt of um, um, I will never experience God's the fullness of God's blessing for me in my marriage. Again, go, going back to um, compatibility is built over time, 
Okay. Um, I think you do, you do end up with a significant, more significant challenge in building that servant mindset in your, in your sexuality and marriage if you've been just having sex outside of marriage because, right, there's no waiting there. There's no, there's no uh, uh, serving the, the person I'm in covenant with. It's more about serving me. And it's, it's, it's a significantly harder challenge to come out of that mentality to, to right, like Romans 12, tra- be transformed by the renewing of your mind and, and to no longer follow the patterns of this world. That, t- that may take longer for, for people who have had a, depends on how extensive that was, um, but it's not impossible. With God, all things are possible. So, so I'll leave you with that. And it's important for you to know uh, that's also part of your testimony and journey and your discipleship. There's now no condemnation for those of you who are in, in Christ. Um, now, this is your cross. Sex becomes a cross you carry in, in your sanctification, but uh, that doesn't have to discourage you because that's everyone's cross, right? Everyone who's married, even if they have been pure until the point of marriage, will have to carry the cross of serving the other person through their sexuality. Either way, you have to serve through your sexuality. You have to carry that cross either way. Um, so it's not like you're living a different Christian story than people who have, you know, stay celibate to marriage. Um, any follow-up to that? I said a lot there. I don't know if those things landed. Um, what has been your rest slash peace in moments of loving your wife during extended seasons of not receiving the same? Right. So I'm assuming this is talking about like not receiving like sexual intimacy. Okay. So yeah, when, when your wife is pregnant, right, uh, you're not going to have the same kind of physical intimacy when, when, you, know, when you were child-free. Okay, uh, it's a bit different, very different. What has been your rest and peace in moments of loving your, yeah. Um, this is, these were the seasons when God really began to expose in my heart through the moments of uh, discontentment and the moments of irritation, moments of entitlement, just, God just exposed uh, the sins in my heart. Uh, through those seasons. And my, my rest and peace in that is um, God is still doing the very sanctifying work in me even through this. Uh, e- even through this, um, and it's helpful to call it what it is. It's suffering, it's pain, okay? Um, and through that, um, there's something really good happening. I think I, I did take a good measure of comfort in that, that God is still bettering me and shaping me into who he wants me to be. Um, that has given me a good measure of rest and peace. Because sometimes you feel like, here's the struggle we also face in our culture too, is because um, sexuality is who you are, it's not what you do, you know? So if you don't, if you don't have it, if you're not gratified in some way, like you're, you're, you're entering into an existential crisis. That's what our culture tells you, right? My life is meaningless because I'm not sexually gratified. That's what our culture says, but it's not what scripture says, okay? And I think Christians can buy into that. So then the seasons where you are lacking sexual fulfillment, you feel severely deprived, entitled and angry and resentful. And that's something you have to work out because that just shows you, as I, it showed me, uh, you've just been so immersed in the cultural view of sexuality and not the scriptural view of it. Right. So, so the positive end of that is, yeah, you're really becoming reformed and sanctified in your worldview um, and reclaiming sexuality for the, for the glory of God. Okay. Any follow-up to that? Okay, all right. There's quite a few more. Um, 
Okay, this, we, we kind of address this. Should Ephesians 5 be viewed from the cultural, social context of when the scripture was written, you know, the first century context, or should it be perceived literally as in, is it applicable today, particularly about how wives should submit to their husbands? So I mentioned earlier, the reason, the reason why we can be more assured this is more of a timeless principle is because he quotes Genesis there. Before the fall, Genesis chapter two. And, that's a, and Jesus did that too. That's how you know something is not just contextual to that culture or that time period, but something that's timeless. You can look for those clues in various other places in scripture where Jesus would reiterate something in the Old Testament to say, this is a universal law and not something like contemporary to, to who he's speaking to. I hope that makes sense. Um, has the biblical interpretation of Ephesians 5 been different or same over the last 2,000 years while humanity evolved, society, and culturally? So, so the egalitarian view that says, um, you know, anything a wife can be, husband can be, anything a husband can be, wife can be, they don't address the text anymore. So it's, not, it's no longer even an interpretation of the text. It's an avoidance. That's not an interpretation. That's just ripping it out of the scriptures. Uh, I'm actually, I want to learn where they, if there are, Scriptural arguments made for that. Like I, I'm open to learning it. Um, I just haven't seen any. But but all the arguments I've seen have been uh, putting scripture aside and talking about here's our cultural moment and let's live in that. Okay. okay. Is there ever a thing as too much sacrifice? Too much is a subjective term. I'll tell you this. Uh, one argument Lynn and I had, uh, it, was a big, it was a big argument, it was over beach towels. We were going on spring break, we were going to the beach, I wanted to buy new beach towels and she did not and oh boy, it was World War III. Um, not buying those beach towels felt like too great a sacrifice for me in that moment. It was too much of a sacrifice. To not buy those brand new beach towels I, I wanted to lay upon the sand and enjoy vacationing upon. That was too big a cross for me to carry. So is there, is there such a thing as too much sacrifice? Yeah, because every sacrifice is too much. Even beach towels is too much. I don't want to give that up. Um, that's how you know it's a sacrifice. Um, we, she likes white meat, I like dark meat. So when we have chicken, I, I find white meat, what do I do? I give it to her. And she's so, it's silly, she's appreciative of that. It's like, oh, thank you. More white meat for me. In what sense am I really serving her in that? Because, I mean, it's really so self-serving. There's zero sacrifice in that. There's zero cost to me. I love dark meat, I hate white meat, so I give her all the white meat. There's, there's absolutely no, so you will know it's a sacrifice when it feels too much. That's how you know it's a sacrifice. Um, but if it doesn't feel like it's too much, it probably isn't. It's probably just you giving her the white meat you don't like anyway. Was there a hand over here? Yeah, Alan. Both. It was like, initially it was, I really want this. And then, it, and then it became, how dare you say no to me? I deserve this. Yeah. I repent it later. 
Huh? How long did it take me? <laughs> I think about half a day. <laughs> no, it's pretty bad. Half a day of silent treatment when you have three kids is an eternity. I'm a sinner, guys. Um, during arguments where both parties are angry, is it more loving to just bite your tongue and acquiesce? Uh, if it's an issue fundamental to the marriage that needs to be discussed, is it better to hash it out now or later? Yeah. Yeah. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Yeah. So I have a slightly different take on that passage. It's usually interpreted as don't go to sleep unless you've dealt with an angry issue or an issue you got angry over. I don't think that's what that means. Um, here's an easy, are you going to tell that to a rape victim? Don't let the sun go down on your anger? That doesn't work. I think what it means is um, don't sleep on it casually like it's nothing. That's how I interpret that. I think that's, what's, that's how it's consistent with the rest of the Bible. Um, so, now most of the things we deal with and we're angry over is not as serious as, and, and probably should be resolved before we go to bed, but um, I don't treat it as like an absolute command, like the 11th commandment or something like that. Um, so, so there's, I'm not saying it's more loving to bite your tongue and acquiesce. There's a difference between biting your tongue and acquiescing and listening for a very long time. Okay. What do I mean by a long time? Well, to a point where your wife says, thank you for listening. You're, you're being a very good listener. Until she affirms you in that, um, don't pat yourself on the back. Be like, enough listening. Time to preach at her. Uh, time to proclaim the truth and um, enlighten her. <laughs> no. Um, yeah, slow. The word slow is applied to God. God is slow to anger. Right. How slow do you want him to be when he's about to be angry about your sins? How slow do you want him to be? Um, be that slow to speak. Be, be that slow to pronounce your judgment or opinion and, 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 and listen. Okay. That's, I don't think that's acquiescing. I think that's just loving. That's just loving. Uh, if it's an issue fundamental, now fundamental has also different meanings. Um, there's fundamental non-urgent, fundamental urgent, all right? So uh, this is a wisdom issue, right? If it's urgent, you, you have to discuss it sooner than later. If it's non-urgent, and how do you, how do you discern that with wisdom? Um, I think a quick thing here for the sake of time is uh, plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors they succeed. Get the advice of many other counselors. Is this something that we should address right now? Uh, how do I winsomely approach this? What do you think? Right? Get many counselors on board, godly people you trust, um, and don't be alone in that, all right? Any, any follow-up? Right. It, I, I wanted to wrap, wrap it around 9 p.m. and then maybe stick around, chat with you guys if you want, but um, um, if you don't have any further questions, I can close here. Yeah, any? Yeah. Yeah. Um, when you're a counseling couple, right, do you, because I'm going to assume 
Yeah, I, I, I would not, I've, and I've had to say no to, to weddings because of that. How would I know if they're nominal or not? I guess if, they, if they're a member of a church and then they tell me, I, I don't know what Jesus did for me, uh, then that's like, that, I'm pretty sure you're nominal. But if they're like, I'm having doubts, I'm struggling as a Christian, I wouldn't jump to the nominal category. Um, so it, it's really hard. Um, if, they're, if they're baptized, I, I, I consider them to be believers, unless there's clear evidence to the you know, contrary. Um, I guess the point I'm trying to make right. is that the Right. So, yeah, I think the way they surveyed that is, um, like, I identify myself as a Christian, but I don't go to church. Or I identify myself as a Christian, but I don't believe the Bible is the Word of God. I identify myself as a Christian, but I don't, all these other things that we consider essential. Then, if the same answers are given to me by the person sitting in front of me, like, I don't think I need to be a member of a church, I don't believe it, I think God might not even exist, uh, because he doesn't really show up in my life. I don't take God's word seriously. I don't think the Bible is God's word, period. It's like he takes kind of this Oprah approach of, you know, there's the Bible and then there's the secret and then there's the Quran. Um, well, I would look over at their partner and be like, this is not a Christian. <laughs> right? um, I will still, I'll still work through the, the process with you, but uh, I'm not going to be able to officiate your wedding. Um, yeah, I would, I would probably. But I have done... Um, premarital for a couple that were unequally yoked, but I, I said, I can, I can give you premarital, but I cannot officiate. Um, I've, I've, done, I've done one for a couple where they're both non-Christians, or both nominal. It's like, I, I can work with that. It's like a weird, it's like a weird, uh, yeah, you're equally yoked. Uh, yeah, and then, and then very rare instances of one nominal, one more devout, committed believer who walks through the process of bringing this nominal Christian to more genuine faith during the pre-engagement and the premarital. But I made it very clear, um, you, you can't guarantee that process. You can't promise the outcome as you try, if you try to do that. So don't set a wedding date. And sure, then I'll, I'll try to work with you. And um, that happens. Um, and by God's grace, that's a, that's a, good, that's a good ending. Um, and um, I, don't, I don't frown upon that. Uh, anyway, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm excited about new Christians. I'm very concerned about nominal Christians. But any other? No? These are great questions. I hope I did okay in answering some of them. Um, let me close in prayer, and then, and then we can uh, hang around a little bit. If you have any, you can come up to me and ask me more, okay? Our gracious Heavenly Father, um, we, we're just scratching the surface here um, of what it means to be Christ-like and a Christ-like husband. I pray, Lord, you bless us in um, positioning us um, in this direction of growth and maturity. Um, Lord, we want to please you. 
We want to live a life that honors you and glorifies you. And we want to do that through our marriage. We want to do that as single people. We want to love as you love. Uh, we want to serve as you serve and, and sacrifice as, you, as you've called us to and shown us. We want to carry our cross. Uh, teach us how, how to do that better. Um, help us to, Lord, uh, begin in the, in the smallest of ways in obeying you. Uh, for those of us, especially those of us who are husbands, I pray that you strengthen us and encourage us to, to begin practicing um, the, the things we talked about today. And maybe that's something as small as uh, the act of listening or, or doing the dishes. Uh, Lord, help us to begin taking active steps in obedience to you. Um, I, I want to pray for those, who are, those, of, those of our brothers who are single, who, who may be struggling with uh, uh, loneliness, um, even, even whenever this topic comes up. I pray that your comfort uh, be with them, your encouragement be with them, and that their, their trust uh, of your active presence and purpose in their lives would grow and for them to know that uh, they're living the most meaningful and purposeful life whenever they, they seek to, to glorify you and become more like your son. Um, and we, we, we ask all of these things uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thank you guys.